0: The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. This morning, we are back in our Matthew series. Again, the past few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew 18 uh, and seeing how God's people, his children, his little ones are to behave in this sin-riddled world We were reminded of our need to humbly submit ourselves to God, our need to pursue holiness together, and we were shown of what to do if someone among us sins against us or begins to stray or falls into serious sin. Well, our passage this morning continues this same discussion of sin in our community and and how to handle it, but Now the Lord specifically instructs us on what the posture of our hearts as individuals should be toward one another as we sin against each other, which will inevitably happen. Jesus, in our passage, will be posed a question which basically asks, how many times do we need to forgive a brother or sister before they are beyond forgiveness? And the Lord's answer to that question is nothing short of revolutionary. So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 18. We will be reading verses 21 to 35, finishing out the chapter, which has just been a good one. They're all good. Like Leah said, they're all good, but it's been sweet being in in 18. So let me pray for us as we get into God's word. Father, we do just ask that your word would be esteemed among us, that it would do its work in our hearts, that you would be glorified. And Father, I ask that you would make us a gracious and forgiving people, a humble people who reflect the heart that you have towards us. Be with us now in the reading, hearing, and preaching and proclaiming of your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents, This is the word of the Lord. This is a radical call that the Lord places on us in this passage. You wouldn't think a message on forgiveness would be a controversial one, but it can be. It can be one that makes us very uncomfortable, especially when we have to start putting the principles into practice. Recently, a group of folks from the church went to see a play based on The Hiding Place, which is the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family, uh, who helped to hide Jews during World War II. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Corey Ten Boom and her family, that was her father and her sister. Her mother had passed from a health issue. They were Christians, and they felt called by the Lord to help protect the Jewish people from the atrocities of the Nazi government. So her family housed Jews secretly in their home until eventually they were caught and sent to concentration camps themselves. They were submitted to the humiliation, the dehumanization, and the abuse that characterized those camps, and her sister and her father both eventually died in the camps. Corey herself survived, and following her release, her understanding of this passage— was put to the test. I don't normally like to do long quotes, but I thought this one was good in its entirety and isn't one easily summarized. The following is, in Corey's own words, her explaining her first encounter with one of her Nazi jailers after the war. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, that's her sister, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people in Bloemendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. Corrie Tenboom forgave her vicious oppressors the group that went to see this play they shared with me afterwards they were dialoguing with another group of people whom they met there their new acquaintances shared that they were completely appalled at the thought of this woman extending any kind of forgiveness or compassion towards her captors we can understand their dismay I've been wronged by people before and I can feel that unwillingness to forgive in my heart. Sometimes it can be over something as slight as them misunderstanding me or making a rude comment or not doing what I ask them to do or even just disagreeing with my perspective. In such moments, we want others to know they're wrong. We want them to feel the pain for their mistake. And the last thing we actually want to do is Forgive. There's times where the smallest slip of the tongue can become a great chasm dividing us from one another. And those are over the slightest of infractions. I can only imagine the pain and the desire for revenge against someone who physically and emotionally abused me and killed my family. And yet the Lord says in our passage this morning, with no exception. We're to be a people who have a heart ready and willing to forgive those who have done us wrong. And we're called to this because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Corey recognized that. That is what finally led her to extend her hand and feel compassion towards someone who had so grievously sinned against her. I pray... Our passage this morning will empower us to have the same strength of conviction that Corey had. We're to be a forgiving people. Now, there's a lot to say about this, and we're going to get into details about it, but we are to be a forgiving people. Forgiveness is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's through forgiveness that we have life, and it's in forgiveness we are to live toward one another. And so the summary of our discussion this morning is very simple and will be centered around two main ideas. We are forgiven to forgive. We are forgiven to forgive. So let's first talk about how we are forgiven. In our passage, Peter. After having heard this teaching from the Lord about the process of church discipline when others fall into deep sin, asks a question that I'm sure we can all relate to. How many times must I forgive a person if they keep sinning against me? Rabbinic teaching from Jesus' time sought to answer this very question. It was taught that if a person had seriously sinned against you three times and you had forgiven them three times, then your duty was done. Should that person sin against you a fourth time and seek forgiveness, no further forgiveness need to be extended. They didn't deserve any further chances. Peter, it seems, is catching on that Jesus was a pretty gracious guy. And so it seems he thought he was likewise pursuing graciousness when he asked, Should I forgive my brother as many as seven times? If the common standard is three... Then I'm being more than doubly generous by offering up seven, Peter must think. But then the Lord's response must have shocked Peter. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now we must not think this was an actual numeric limit that Jesus was placing on this, but rather a hyperbolic number indicating infinite forgiveness with a very interesting Old Testament illusion behind it. In chapter 4 of Genesis, after Cain kills his brother Abel, one of Cain's descendants, a man named Lamech, is introduced. And the picture painted of Lamech is not a positive one. And the predominant trait we learn about him is that he revels in vengefulness. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech finds great delight in seeking vengeance towards those who have done him wrong. So much so that he says, my vengeance will be had to the seventy-seventh multiplier. Once again, it's not a limit, but a statement that there would be in fact no limit to the revenge he would seek on someone who had wronged him. It's no coincidence then that the Lord uses this same language 77 times here. Peter, you know how much Lamech was consumed with vengefulness? You know how he said that he would seek revenge to the 77th time? How he would avenge no matter what? I say to you, you must turn that on its head. Where he was controlled by revenge... You must be controlled by a spirit to forgive. And not just forgive some things, but as he sought revenge against any wrongs done to him, you must grant forgiveness for any wrongs done to you. It's a very high order. And likely, many are sitting here and thinking, we must forgive anything? What about this? Or what about that? What if they sin again and again? Or, or what if it's reasonable to have these thoughts? And again, there are things we will discuss in a minute about the practical implications of this, but again, the message here cannot be more clear. We must always be willing to forgive. And then Jesus, knowing that this is a tall order, gives this parable about the unforgiving servant. I love this parable. I'm challenged by this parable. And while the reason for giving the parable is to reinforce this call to forgive no matter what, the way it goes about reinforcing that is by reminding us first and foremost of how we ourselves have been forgiven. We cannot We absolutely cannot discuss the second point of this passage that we need to forgive if we don't have the strength and the conviction that comes from the first point, that we have been forgiven ourselves. In this parable, Jesus presents this picture of a king and his servants. And in the beginning, he specifically says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to it. That means the implications of this parable extend to us all. The forgiveness that we will see extended to the servant is the forgiveness we have been shown. And the forgiveness the servant is supposed to show is the forgiveness that we are supposed to show. In the parable, we see this king who calls his servants to him to pay off the debts that they owe. So one of his servants comes... And we're told he owed 10,000 talents. This is an extreme and highly unrealistic amount of money that was owed. It's used here to make an emphatic point. Conservative estimates have the value of a single talent when adjusted for time and inflation being around a year's worth of minimum wages in today's terms. And some estimates think a talent could have been as high as worth 20 years of pay. But let's assume even that most conservative estimate, it's about a year's wages, that would put the total at 10,000 years wages that this man owed, a debt that is absolutely impossible to pay. He, this servant, not a king, not an aristocrat, doesn't have access to storehouses of gold, could not even conceive of paying this money back. In dollar amounts, this would range anywhere from $200 million to as high as $3 billion in today's money. If any of us owed that much, there'd be nothing we could do to pay it back. And if we could, well, I hope you're tithing, because that will help <laughs> us as a church. <laughs> and so the master says... Because you owe me such a great debt, I will order you and your wife and your children to be sold. Back in this time, debt slavery was a common thing. If you could not pay back debts, you would do so through servitude. And so the king says, this is what I will do. But we know even that wouldn't come close to paying 10,000 talents worth of money that was owed. So it's not like this is still even sufficient for what was owed. And so this servant, in an act of desperation, speaks delusionally and says, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. It's an absurd statement. Yet the master, we're told, was moved with pity for him, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now remember what Jesus said, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. There's a picture of forgiveness in this passage that we are supposed to see as it relates to our own situation. We are all like this man standing before a great king and judge and we owe a debt that we could never possibly repay. We spoke several weeks ago about sin, the nature of it. We talked about how sinning against an eternally holy God incurs an eternal debt that's due. We are not eternally holy ourselves, and thus we cannot possibly even with the most time afforded to us in the world make up for the wrongs that we have done in rebelling against God. This man could not pay back the debt. And this man was out of his mind, even thinking that he could possibly do so. We cannot possibly pay back the debt. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that we need to to be forgiven of our debts as we forgive our debtors. This monetary language is used by the Lord to help us to see. We can think tangibly about what it's like to have a debt. It's used to help us understand that payback is due for all the wrong that we have done. The payback, of course, is not money. Our money is nothing to God. It means absolutely nothing. But the payback is just its, it's punishment for the wrongs done. It's justice being executed. And even then... Even in eternity separated from God, we again could never come close to paying back what we owe Him, which is why it is an eternity. All of us are bound in slavery to sin and death. From the first moment sin entered the world, every human who's walked this earth has been given over to it and has rejected God. That alone is enough to incur that debt and to separate us from Him. But then on top of that, every careless word, every lack of love, For others or for God, every moment of hate, every lustful thought, every greedy intention, every single step we take that is less than the perfect righteousness that God requires continues to rack up further debt against us. Debt on top of debt on top of debt on top of debt. Just imagine that pressure you feel when a car payment is due or a large medical bill hits. Or a job loss leaves you wondering how you're going to make ends meet. It can feel like compounding things piling on top. Take those feelings, multiply them by a billion. That's our situation before the Lord. A feeling of helplessness. How am I going to do this? No amount of good works can ever possibly come close to us repaying Him. Our situation is bleak. The situation of this servant was bleak, but, and this is also how the kingdom of heaven is like this parable. Not only do we owe a debt we could never repay, we come before a king who has pity on us and has made a way for our debts to be erased. We use the word gospel a lot. What gospel really means is good news. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, he brought the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yet if we all owe this great debt to this king who's over us, how could the king and his kingdom coming be good news for us? It was good news because in bringing the kingdom, he also brought the solution for our plight. Payment Had to be made. There's a reason creditors don't just forgive all debts, and it's not just because they're greedy. To just forgive all debt would be akin to stealing. Money was loaned with an expectation of return, and so money must come back. We'd never look at a poor old person who was conned by internet scams and say, Ah, the thief doesn't need to repay. No, we would demand repayment be made. That's what is just. God, our King, is just, and because He's just, payment is due for our sin, a life separated from Him. As we said, eternally experiencing His wrath is the only sufficient, and it's still insufficient, repayment for rebellion against Him. And so we can't just say, you're forgiven without repayment. That wouldn't be just to him against whom we have sinned first and foremost, and it wouldn't be just to those whom also we have wronged. But the king has shown pity on us. God, in his compassion, desires to cancel the record of debt that stands against us. But how can he do that and still be just? Payment has to be made, and so he sent his son. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth as a man, and he lived the perfect life that we could not. And because he never sinned, not once, he did not deserve to die. Yet for our sake, he did die. Humiliated and scorned on the cross, he experienced the most excruciating form of execution and took upon himself the eternal wrath of God that was due for our sins so that we ourselves might be freed from the record of debt that stood against us. Jesus became our payment. Colossians 2 says, "'And you who were dead in your trespasses.'" God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Put it up there and said, it's been paid. Imagine if all the debts that you owed could go away if you simply said, I need them to be forgiven. If you go to the bank, for the mortgage on your home, and say, you know what, if you could just forgive that. Say, okay, great, sure. That's the offer before us in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved no works, no just wait and I will repay, just the kindness of our God who died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be set free. And this forgiveness extends to every sin we have ever committed. And every sin we will ever commit, daily the Lord stands through the blood of Christ in a posture of un. Ending forgiveness towards us who trust in him. If you're here and you've never confessed your need for the forgiveness of God, I encourage you to do it today. You can never be good enough to get yourself into heaven. You owe a debt you cannot repay. And yet one day, payment will be required of you. And you don't say, And if you don't say, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, then your payment will be eternal separation from God, experiencing the just wrath for your sins. But Jesus welcomes you today with this offering of grace. Do not neglect it. It doesn't matter what you have done. No sin is too big that the Lord cannot forgive. God has welcomed us his enemies, his debtors, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. That's incomprehensible kindness. We have to fight every day to remember this glorious truth. This is where we are anchored, the mercy and grace of our God in heaven. It frees us to love and to be loved. But the passage goes on. But because we aren't... Forgiven to just live then as if we hadn't been. This forgiveness should have profound, life-altering effects on us. Specifically here, we're reminded that we are forgiven to forgive. And that's our second point. We must forgive. The parable continues. After the servant was forgiven his debt, then one of his fellow servants comes up to him who owes him 100 denarii. Now, this isn't an inconsequential number. It's about a few months' worth of pay. So it's, it's money. He owes him money. But it's absolutely nothing compared to what the first servant was forgiven and owed to the king. And so after having been shown such mercy, how does this servant respond to his co-worker who approaches him? It says, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. The second servant pleads for mercy and time to repay, but the first has him thrown into prison, at which point it is now impossible for him to make payment. Fellow servants see this and they're distressed. They're likely distressed because they know the graciousness of the king that they serve and the way that the king had forgiven this servant. And now they see such vindictiveness being shown by him to the other servants. Legally, it wasn't necessarily wrong to have someone thrown in debtor's prison, but what they're troubled by is the heart that they see in this man towards the other. So the master comes and confronts the servant and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all his debts. And yet again, the Lord makes sure we understand that this parable applies to us. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is very serious. We previously read a similar warning in Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, neither of these warnings, we have to be careful, neither of them mean... That our salvation is secured by our success or lack of it in forgiving other people. That's not what they're saying. No, this passage makes very clear. The man was forgiven, not based off of his forgiveness towards others, but based off the kindness of the king. Again, the only way our debt is paid is through the blood of Jesus Christ. But what these verses do mean is that if we have understood the incalculable debt that has been forgiven us through Jesus Christ, then we must also be a people who forgive. We, of course, won't do this perfectly, but if our hearts show us to be cold, vindictive, unforgiving, and exacting of others as a disposition, then we surely have not understood and received the forgiveness that is available to us through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It doesn't say you must forgive to be saved, but it does say as you have been forgiven, so you must also forgive. We love because he first loved us. And if we need help living in this, we need only to look to the cross of Christ. That is what Corey Tenboom did. When we look at the cross, we remember that we have wronged Jesus more than we will wrong or be wronged by any other human being on this earth. And yet, Jesus still forgave us. As Jesus hung there on the cross looking out, at many of his disciples who betrayed him, at a world that he had created and came to save, standing there mocking him. He didn't shout curses. He didn't seethe with anger. He didn't give the cold shoulder. No, he looked out and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's compassion. When we look at the cross, we remember also God's perfect justice. We know that we can forgive because all wrongs will be addressed. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Every single wrong, every single wrong that has been done on this earth will either be paid for in eternity by the one who did it, or it has been paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross If that wrongdoer seeks forgiveness and covering, this frees us up to forbear and to set aside our bloodlust towards one another. Justice will be done in the end. We can rest in the perfect justice of God through Christ Jesus. When we look at the cross, What we see is a Savior with a heart of compassion and forgiveness in even the most vile of situations who is surely bringing justice but invites us to extend His mercy at present. How often so many of us live like the second servant. Pay me what you owe me. Withholding forgiveness from those who ask. Carrying around bitterness like a dear old blanket. Keeping a record of wrongs. Setting the bar of forgiveness at three times or less. How many friendships and marriages and families and churches have been torn apart by an unwillingness to seek forgiveness and an unwillingness to forgive and grant mercy when it is requested? It's destructive. How many of our problems would be solved if we simply sought forgiveness from one another and forgave? Practicing repentance and forgiveness is one of the clearest pictures we have to offer the world of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We must forgive. It's a non-negotiable. If there's someone in your life where you say, I could never forgive them... You need to seek the Lord's help. That said, I know this can raise a lot of questions. And so I want to take a minute to walk through some of the more common ones that come to our minds. First, what do we say to the person who says, I want to forgive, but I'm struggling to do so. I just, I can't. To that we say, if they're they're working towards it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord knows we are a work in process. The Lord knows forgiveness for us can be hard. It took Corey a moment to put her hand up. It may take you longer than that. But what was she doing in the delay? She was praying. She was asking the Lord for help. If you feel unable to forgive, but you're seeking the Lord's help to do so, you're walking faithfully. However... If you say, I could never and will never forgive that person, no matter what, as a resolved stance, then you are in a danger zone, forgetting what has been forgiven you and limiting the Lord's grace on that person's life. Another person might ask, how and must I forgive the offender if the offender does not ask for forgiveness? Do I have to forgive if they they haven't asked or acknowledged that they've done something wrong? It's a valid question. And yes, for a person to receive full forgiveness, they indeed must ask for it and repent of their sins. However, we must not let a person's unwillingness to recognize their wrongdoing be a secret way of us harboring resentment or bitterness toward them. The Lord says that He does not delight in the death of the wicked, And he wishes that none should perish. We know that the Lord does rejoice at justice. And so evil and evildoers being punished in one sense is a joy to him. He is glad to see justice done. But in another sense, the Lord is grieved by it. He does not wish that person to be in the state that they are in. We too must share this heart. Even if a person has not sought our forgiveness as believers, we need to have the perspective that we would be ready and able to forgive should they ask it. And we should desire that they would repent and that their sin would be covered by the blood of the cross. That's what our heart disposition is supposed to be towards us. We're told to pray for our enemies. What's that prayer? Pray that they would turn. We simply can't have a heart that wishes evil on others, no matter how evil they have been towards us. Still another question might be, does forgiveness mean that there's no consequences for sin? No, it does not mean that. The Lord himself disciplines. We just saw the process of church discipline. So forgiveness doesn't mean that we allow sin to run rampant. Forgiveness does not mean that we don't seek justice in situations, particularly on behalf of others who have been wronged, if one of you steals money from another, as a church, we would call that person to repent and forgive them if they did, but we would also tell them to give the money back. If someone murdered another among us I hope that doesn't happen we would seek for that person to repent. And as believers, be ready to forgive, but we would also ensure that they face the proper penalties of the land for what has been done. Again, we're talking mostly about what our heart disposition is. Are we willing to forgive or do we refuse to extend the same mercy towards others that we have been shown in Christ? Another question Does forgiveness mean that I have to trust this person again? Forgiveness and trust are two different things. A victim of abuse, for example, is called to forgive if forgiveness is asked for. Now that is hard. That takes Holy Spirit power. That type of will can only, like Corey Tenboom, come from being rooted in the fact that we ourselves have been forgiven of so much. And that Jesus himself is willing to forgive any despite their sins should they come to him. But having a heart posture of grace does not mean trust is easily restored or that those injured are wrong to protect themselves. And we need to seek to care for and protect them as well. We live in a fallen world. Our ability to heal emotionally from serious sin can take a lifetime. And we cannot be sure while we're on this sinful earth that a brother or sister wouldn't hurt us in the same way again. So it may be appropriate at times to have grace in your heart, but refrain from interaction or put safeguards in place. The Lord calls us to forgive, but he doesn't call us and force us to knowingly throw ourselves into situations where we'll be repeatedly wronged. If a brother or sister borrows money from you and repeatedly fails to pay you back, you ought to forgive them, call them to recognize their sin and repent, but it doesn't mean you have to keep loaning them money again and again. In fact, it may be best for them that you don't. While on this earth there may be pains and consequences that linger even up to the end from our sin. With that, though, I do want to add two things. First, the vast majority of the wrongs that are going to be done to us will not be so grievous that healing shouldn't be expected. Most of the ways we will be sinned against by each other and sin against each other should be able to be handled through confession and prayer and forgiveness and time, and we should be able to embrace comfortably one another again. Most of the things that we do to each other, we should be able to do this. Second, there will be a day in heaven where we will be able to completely embrace every brother or sister on this earth in fullness of joy. We want to have that perspective so that as much as we're able now, we pursue that. Again, it's hard. We won't get there perfectly. But there will be a day where we will all embrace one another with absolute, unabandoned joy. Think of it. Paul had believers put to death before he trusted in Christ. And yet he wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and we lean on him. Those believers who died at his hand, I'm certain, embrace him joyfully now in the presence of the Lord. It's a supernatural thing that can bring that about. So often as believers, we fail to remember what we've been forgiven of, and we fail to treat others like they've been forgiven or could be forgiven in Christ as well. We must operate with the mentality that Corey Ten Boom had as she stood in front of that Nazi soldier who had abused her, recognizing she's a vehicle to express the mercy and the grace of Christ to that man because she has been a receiver of that same mercy and grace. Now, not all of us may have the strength to confront as she did, but again, there's a heart work that we should all have that happens within us. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to forgive. We're called not to keep a record of wrongs. We're called to forbear. We're called to at times overlook offense. And we're called to do all these things because this is what our Lord has done for us. And this is what our Lord can do through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. I encourage you, if, if there's a relationship in your life that's unreconciled, and you've not sought to bring reconciliation, pray that you might be able. If there's someone you know you harbor bitterness toward and feel unable or unwilling to forgive, even if they sought to be forgiven, I encourage you to pray and ask that the Lord might soften your heart. And on the flip side, if you've wronged others, confess and seek forgiveness. And for all of us, let's dwell on the forgiveness that we have received in Christ Jesus. That we might be thankful, joyful people who are eager and ready to forgive others as well. We have the opportunity to show the world how Christ forgives. So let's stand as his witnesses and love as we have been loved. Pray with me. Father, I do ask that your healing power of forgiveness would come into our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we can even be with you because you are a God who forgives. Lord, as you hung on the cross and you looked out at a world who rejected you, a world made for you yet spit in your face and nailed you to the cross, you looked out and you said forgive They know not what they do. Your heart was that there would be repentance and turning. Help us, Lord. You know we are frail and we are weak. Help us to walk in wisdom and to be forgiving. Lord, I ask that the forgiveness that you have given us would be so tangible within ourselves that we can't but forgive others when they do wrong against us. And I pray that as we go and as we forgive and as we extend mercy and we extend grace, that you would transform hearts and lives through that. That you would free us from the weight and the pain of bitterness and unforgiveness and that you would open up other people's hearts to see and receive the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Let us be examples of the forgiveness that is available to all through Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, through the power of his great saving blood. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.